Hello again and welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. Today we're going to continue in our discussion of what is the true Holy Scripture. And this will be part three and hopefully the concluding part. At the end of this part three, I intend to read all the passages within the New Testament that mention the term Scripture. There are 51 of those passages, so that could extend this part three to be a bit longer than the other parts, but I will still try to keep it, if possible, within 45 minutes or so, at most one hour. But I am going to try to conclude our discussion here in part three. All right, so I'm going to jump right into it. Again, part three of what is the true Holy Scripture. So, what is the final authority for faith and practice for anyone who claims to be a follower of the Bible? Of course, again, since the Yeshua Judaism series is primarily focused on targeting Christians to bring them out of the apostasy of the Romanized faith, which uh, basically kidnapped, overturned, and totally restructured the original faith of and in Christ. That's why the target audience is Christians, to try to bring them back to Yeshua, to the true faith, just in time before his return, which everyone, be they within the Christian community or the Jewish community, the expectations are are high. It's like everyone's on high alert expecting Messiah at any time. And I personally truly do believe from uh, much study, not just within Christian stuff, but also within various Judaic sources, that we are at most within 10 years of his return, at most. And it could actually be any time. Now, so do you want to be a true follower of the Bible? Do you want to actually follow Christ and have the faith of and in Christ, as did his original followers? Well, one of the first questions you must must ask is, what is the true Holy Scripture? And depending upon your answer to that question, you will find yourself either following Christ or opposing Christ. So hopefully we will not be opposing Christ. So what is the final authority for faith and practice? All right. This question is easily answered using the facts which we presented in parts one and two. Clearly, and in accord with the teachings of our Torah-observant Messiah Yeshua and all his Torah-observant followers, the final authority in all matters of faith and practice is the Tanakh. Again, what Christians sadly and irreverently call the Old Testament. Now, I defined Torah elsewhere. Perhaps one of the best places you can go is the five-part series in which I prove that in actuality, because of its apostasy and deviation from truth based upon Roman influence, Christianity actually does not teach to follow Christ. And that's a five-part series. I define Torah. I will also have a lengthy podcast, God willing, upcoming in which I will delve much deeper into Torah. So, again, in accord with the teachings of our Torah observant Messiah Yeshua and his followers, the final authority is the Tanakh. Furthermore, 
When a person studies the New Testament, this final authority must be kept in mind as apparent contradictions arise between what the New Testament writer appears to say and the Tanakh, which Yeshua and his followers so lovingly embraced as unchanging and ultimate truth. Often, when one places oneself within the thoroughly Hebraic Torah context and mindset of the New Testament authors, any sincere Bible student will realize that there is no conflict at all between the Tanakh and the New Testament. Friend, it is impossible, impossible, to correctly interpret Hebraic pro-Torah writings from Israelite authors who honor a Messiah of Israel if that person uses westernized Greco-Roman philosophy or thought patterns. It's impossible. And unfortunately, that's the primary problem within Christianity. Christianity uses a westernized, Romanized mindset to try and interpret Hebraic, Torah-focused writings. And the mindset is so off-base, it's so off-base, they generally fail to properly interpret it. A classic example of this, which I will not delve into at this time, but a classic example are the writings of the Apostle Paul. They are grotesquely misinterpreted by Christian pastors. Why? Because those pastors are ignorant of Torah. And I don't say that in a mean way when I say when I use the term ignorant. You prefer, I'd say unlearned, untaught. That's what I mean. They're untaught. They do not know Torah themselves. They've never studied it. Or if they have, they've studied it very briefly, particularly the oral Torah. And if a person does not have a basic grasp of that, my friend, it is not possible to properly interpret Paul. It's just not. I mean, there are people who will argue, but they argue from a position of ignorance, of Torah ignorance. So they really can't, they're not even capable of arguing with me on something like that because they do not know enough about Torah to even legitimately be able to argue and debate. But um, you got to place yourself in that Hebraic Torah perspective, in that Hebraic Torah mindset, if you intend to properly interpret the New Testament. And the first step to doing that, the very first step, is to make sure you use the same scriptures they did. Make sure you use the same Bible that Yeshua and Peter and James and John and Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul and all the other characters in the New Testament use. Ensure you use their Bible, and their Bible was the Tanakh. There was no New Testament. All right, now, and this is something that unfortunately causes anxiety, what I'll be discussing next uh, among Christians. We need to be honest. Christians, be honest regarding the New Testament's imperfections. Yes, the New Testament is not a perfect transmission of the writings of its authors. It must be noted, as I discuss elsewhere also, that the New Testament is not a 100% perfect transmission of what was written. It simply isn't. And anyone who says it is, is frankly either grossly ignorant of historic truth 
and of the New Testament con- uh, manuscripts and manuscript fragments, etc., or they're lying. I mean, it is an absolutely sure and incontrovertible fact that the New Testament you have may have on your bookshelf is not a 100% perfect transmission of what was originally written by the authors. Now, many who disagree with me on this will vehemently present an argument similar to the following, and they'll make, they'll make the following statement or something similar. They'll say, the New Testament has been proven 99% accurate. Well, first of all, that's untrue, but, but let's assume that it's true, and I'll ex- I accept their statement. Let's assume that the New Testament is, is literally 99% accurate. I mean, that's pretty good. 99% is very good, all right? And I do accept that the New Testament is highly reliable, and I state such elsewhere on the TorahMessiah.org website and, and within these podcasts. I may even accept the 99% accuracy claim. But here's the question. Do people who make such statements actually accept their own accuracy estimate? Are they willing to stand by their statement of 99% accuracy within the New Testament? If they so forcefully promote the idea that the New Testament is 99% accurate, then they must also accept what is implied by their statement, which is that there is 1% corruption within the New Testament. Are they willing to admit that one out of every 100 words in the New Testament is incorrect based upon their own vigorously stated position of 99% New Testament accuracy? There are 7,957 verses in the New Testament. Are those who promote a 99% accuracy of the New Testament willing to admit that by their own estimation, roughly 80, 80 New Testament passages present a corrupt transmission of information? Are they willing to accept that? I mean, if the New Testament is 99% accurate, then that means there are 80 passages in the New Testament that are, that are wrong. Depending upon where those 80 verses are located, they may greatly affect one's understanding of the New Testament or its transmission of truth. I mean, 80 passages. If there are 80 corrupt passages in the New Testament, depending on where those passages are located, it could totally change, completely change, a person's understanding of what the New Testament is saying. And again, we're assuming here 99% accuracy in the New Testament. The fact is, even those who assume 99% accuracy for the New Testament still refuse to admit that there may be 1% error and corruption in the New Testament. Okay, let's say if a person chooses to assume 99.5% accuracy. Well, that still leaves about 40 
340 corrupt passages, which themselves, depending on where they're located, could tremendously affect a person's understanding of the New Testament. But see, people generally will not admit that either. They won't even admit 40 verses are corrupt. And that's assuming 99.5% accuracy. Additionally, those who accuse me or people like me of discarding passages that I choose not to accept do the exact same thing when shown New Testament passages that conflict with their own beliefs. They are proven to be hypocrites. And I've seen that often. At times, I'll come across a passage I can't I can't correlate, I can't really make the, the connect the dots between it and say what the Torah teaches or what the or what the Tanakh teaches teaches. So what so what I will typically do is lay that passage aside, not discard it, lay it aside and recognize that since the Tanakh is the final authority, if it seems to conflict with the Tanakh, then I'm obviously either don't know enough yet to properly interpret it or it's corrupt, so I lay it aside. And people will jump on me for that and say, you're discarding passages, but they do the same thing. I can show, and I do, <laughs> within the podcast and on the website, verse after verse after verse, after, you know, for instance, the, the, the situation or belief that Yeshua is God. I can show so many different verses and so, show, so excuse me, so many different uh, situations and scenarios within the pages of the New Testament that completely disproves the Jesus is God theory. They ignore it. They completely ignore it. So if if they're going to accuse me or someone like me of laying aside passages, then they need to look in the mirror because they do it all the time. All right. So the difference between me and them is that I use the same approach as the noble Bereans as recorded in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. I use, I basically study Scripture just as the Bereans did. I test the verses of the New Testament by comparing them to what is written in the Tanakh, the historic context of the first century, and I also test against what I deem to be legitimate oral Torah. Such tests are virtually never used by Christian leaders. So again, I basically am like a Berean. I test the verses, and the Scripture tells us to. The New Testament itself tells us to test, to scrutinize. So I test the verses of the New Testament. you got to remember, when, we're, when we read the New Testament, we're reading a translation of Greek manuscripts that were collected and compiled from varying, differing Greek manuscripts. So what we're reading, we're starting out basically in a weak position. We're having to depend upon and trust the, both the honesty and the capabilities of the scholars who compiled and translate the New Testament. We're having to also often ignore their own bias. All right, so we start from a weak, weak position. But so when we read the New Testament, scrutinize what it says and always test it by comparing it to the Tanakh 
and also by comparing it to the historic context of the first century, which unfortunately most Christians are unaware of the true history. The, the most critical critical histories for a Christian, or, or excuse me, the most critical time frame for a Christian, which they need to understand, basically is the first century and, and the second century, possibly up through the fourth century. Because most of Christian history that you'll be told they only start at the 4th century. There's not a whole lot of focus on the first four centuries. And my friend, I'm telling you, the 1st and 2nd centuries in particular are extremely important because that is when you begin to see a direct apostasy occurring. And I will get into that when I start, uh, when I have a podcast in which I discuss Emperor Hadrian. Although, you can actually get a snippet of that and a, an idea of what happened by going to the Tor Messiah website, the home page. And, and it says how if, Jesus, if Yeshua showed up today, he would go to a synagogue and he would avoid churches. And on the home page, I think it's like a second or third paragraph, I mention hatred in what he did. And this was, friend, this was the first, or excuse me, the early 2nd century, Rome took over. Rome took over and kicked out the original followers of Yeshua and totally changed everything. It became, it went from being a pro-Torah religion or faith system to an anti-Torah faith system, and it began as early as the 2nd century. I won't go down that rabbit trail. I'll uh, ignore I could talk for quite a while on that, but I won't go down there. But, the, but what I'm trying to say is, when you read the New Testament, you need to understand the historic context, and you also need to test it against what is legitimate Torah concepts, which are often oral Torah concepts, because the New Testament is literally packed. It is filled with oral Torah. I, I mean, filled with it. Musar, even some Kabbalah, Halakha, Agadah. I mean, there is so much oral Torah in the New Testament, but Christians don't know. Why? Because they have never been taught the oral Torah. And why is that? Because they're told it's abolished, or they're told it's the traditions of men, or they're told this, or they're told that. They're ignorant of it. And even the fools, the Christian leader fools, who tell them it's, it's note that oral Torah is abolished or oral Torah is illegitimate, they do not realize that from their own pulpits they're teaching oral Torah. And they don't even realize it. They don't even realize the New Testament is filled with the stuff that they say is abolished or which they say are traditions of men that Christians should not listen to. That's what they are preaching themselves and they don't even realize it. I won't get into that, but when I get into the oral tour discussion, the which will be a lengthy, multi-part series, I'll get into it then, and I'm not going to hold back because it's such hypocrisy. It is such hypocrisy for any Christian pastor to say the oral tour is uh, abolished or or illegitimate is the very epitome of apostasy, or, or excuse me, of of hypocrisy. The very epitome of it. Okay, I'll shut up. That's a really touchy top subject, obviously, with me. Okay, 
All right. So continuing, you got to test the New Testament. You got to test it. You got to test it against the history. You got to test it against the Tanakh primarily, and you got to test it against Torah. And in order to, in order to perform those tests, you got to know all three of those, which sadly Christians generally don't. Now, by doing that, I am actually more of a New Testament believer than are most Christians who differ with me. Matter of fact, any Christian who differs with me in this regard, I'm more of a New Testament believer than they are because I'm testing the New Testament just as it tells me to do. I am not saying that the New Testament is bogus or of little value. I'm not saying that at all. Many falsely accuse me of that since they cannot refute my arguments. All I am saying is that even if the New Testament corruption which exists is very, very small, a very small percentage of the overall number of New Testament passages, it is unwise to ultimately base one's faith on a collection of writings which are proven to be corrupt or questionable in various areas and which were collected by men who were driven by bias and often a lust for power and who generally did not take a hands-off approach in their copying of the New Testament manuscripts. They tweaked them. They made a little change here and there depending upon their bias at times. I am also not implying that there is a lot of corruption in the New Testament. In fact, I don't believe there is. However, it doesn't take much cyanide or cobra venom to kill a person. One drop is basically all that is needed. Likewise, a biased Christian scribal edit of just a few carefully placed words within the New Testament can totally poison the New Testament truth. Totally. Particularly when those words are contained in a handful of crucial verses. It is for this reason that we should follow the New Testament author's pleas to always base one's faith ultimately on what is written in the Tanakh by verifying that what we understand from the New Testament has proper contextual Tanakh support. In other words, we need to always make sure that what the New Testament is saying can be supported from the Tanakh. And at times that's very difficult. Especially, and I'll deviate very slightly here, especially when it comes to Yeshua and identifying him as Messiah. See, that's where you must have oral Torah. Because it's very difficult. I'm telling you, now there, there are obvious Messianic passages in the Tanakh, and many of them, in fact, most of them, to be honest, and if the rabbis are honest, many of them, including Isaiah 53, even the rabbis will say is a Messianic passage. Now, if a rabbi ever says that's not true, he's a liar. Period. Full stop. Rabbinic Judaism teaches Isaiah 53 is a messianic 
area of Scripture, as well as others that are that the New Testament identifies as messianic. If a rabbi says that's not true, he's a liar. What he's doing is he may not believe it is. That particular rabbi may not believe it, but that rabbi knows for a, a, a certainty that other rabbis do believe those, those areas of Scripture are messianic. So never believe a rabbi. And there are some horribly uh, despicable, hypocritical, particularly in the counter-missionary movement, Jews for Judaism and that kind of thing, they will lie to your face and do so shamelessly. Isaiah 53 and other, and other Tanakh passages are messianic, and they know it, and if they say otherwise, they're lying. What they're not telling you is they simply disagree with many other rabbis who clearly do believe them to be messianic, particularly if you get into the Hashkafa teachings and Kabbalah and stuff like that. It very much does. Oddly, Christianity rejects Kabbalah, and yet Kabbalah supports the very messianic passages Christianity puts forth. So anyway, that's a quick deviation, but I had to get that in there because I get so sick of hearing rabbis and, and basically rabbinic Jews say things that are just blatant lies. And one of those things is that Isaiah 53 and Zechariah and other, and other areas of Scripture are not messianic. They're lying. Or they're simply idiotic fools and don't even know what their own religion teaches. I mean, they may, they're either liar or they're a fool who don't even know what Judaism teaches and they're part of Judaism, Akiva Judaism. Anyway, I'll shut up. <laughs> That's another t- touchy subject with me. I get so sick of hearing uh, Akiva, Judaism, Akiva Judaism rabbis and adherents just be bold-faced liars. I mean, they just lie all the time, And but if you don't know oral Torah, you don't know they're lying. But I do know it somewhat, and I know they're lying. All right. Okay. <laughs> I'll shut up. Maybe I should pause here and uh, get a cup of coffee or something. Or right. well, maybe I should drink less coffee. All right. Uh, so let's go on with what I was saying. Um uh, Obviously, that may have shut people down who think that I'm some, uh, you know, that I'm against the New Testament, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm very much not against the New Testament. I, I am fighting for it all the time. I constantly am fighting against Akiva Judaism lying uh, to prove that what they're saying is lies and that actually the Torah very much does promote and basically parallel and compare well with the New Testament. So, yeah, I'm a strong proponent of the New Testament. Don't, don't think otherwise, because I am. I'm also, however, a strong proponent of the truth and of the proper interpretation of the New Testament. I'm, and I hate bias, and I'm always scrutinizing myself. I, I mean, I am, and that's what we all should do, to try to find any impurity of bias, oh, excuse me, of bias within my soul, within my mind. I despise bias. Bias is the mind killer. Bias kills truth. Bias is the enemy of truth, and you should root it out all the time. You should constantly be searching for bias within your mind and rid yourself of it. That's what I've done, yet I'm still a very, very strong. Matter of fact, doing so has made me a stronger, stronger proponent of the New Testament, not a weaker proponent. All right. Oh, now I've gone deviated so far, but I'll continue on. Hopefully I haven't broken stride so much that you've forgotten what I talked about. Okay. So my point was that we need to base our our New Testament beliefs on on history 
on the Tanakh, which is the ultimate source of truth, and on Torah. And sadly, since most Christians do not know any of those, especially Torah, it leaves Christians in a very vulnerable position to be taken advantage of and lied to and indoctrinated. Because if you put your faith in a pastor, you're basically outsourcing your eternity. You're outsourcing. You're outsourcing the only thing that you can pos- that the most valuable thing you, you have is your e- eternity, your soul. And if you don't understand enough to be able to find truth on your own, you're giving that over to someone else. You're outsourcing your eternal destiny. You shouldn't do that. So learning history is important, especially the first two or three centuries. It's very important. Learning Torah is important. Reading, studying basic oral Torah is important. And it's not that hard, people. But ultimately, the most important is make sure your faith is based upon the Tanakh, not the New Testament. And verify the New Testament by comparing it to the Tanakh. All right. Okay, Christians need to also realize that the New Testament canon underwent substantial redaction or editing and that the available manuscripts exhibit clear scribal manipulation. I'm sorry, but that's just the truth. These manuscripts, that is the thousands of original Greek writings, also differ from one another, thus proving that they are not God-breathed. The next time a preacher tells you the New Testament is free of, of substantial error, ask that preacher or pastor to provide the number of differences. If they do not tell you that the differences between available manuscripts and manuscript fragments number into the thousands, then they are either lying to you or they're ignorant of the facts themselves, and they shouldn't be telling people that the New Testament is free of error when they don't even know. The usual tactic is to declare the differences to be minor, that is, the differences in the available New Testament manuscripts. And I do agree. I very much agree with that. In most cases, they are minor. And I do feel that the New Testament is very, very reliable. The fact, though, is is nonetheless proven that the available manuscripts do differ in thousands of places. Most of the most of the time it's very most of the time it's negligible. Okay, don't don't be anxious about this. Most differences are negligible. They do not affect the passages, okay? But the fact that there are differences proves that the New Testament that you may have on your bookshelf is not the pure word of God. If the New Testament were perfect, then all those thousands of manuscripts and manuscript fragments would be identical. There would be no differences. Anyone who uses common sense has to admit this. The immense reverence given the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, by Hebrew scribes, and the unthinkable idea of manipulating those revered texts was not followed by the New Testament Christian scribes who looked upon the Greek New Testament manuscripts with far less of a hands-off approach. 
as uncomfortable as it is, it is nonetheless an absolute fact that scribal manipulation did occur as the New Testament underwent the process of canonization. Now remember, how was this done? You had original writings written by Paul or James or John or Matthew, whoever. Those writings had to then be copied and copied and copied. They were distributed all over the place, you know, distributed by hand, you know, copied and copied. So you have, you have manuscript copies, and they had no copying machines, okay? There were no copy machines. You had to do it by hand. And to be a scribe, a true scribe was a, a very technical profession because a scribe was someone who was paid and educated in exact copies. I mean, and when I say exact people, I mean absolute exact. Like if one page, if the original page had, say, 10,000 words, and after the scribe, or 10,000 10, letters in an alphabet, and after the scribe finishes that, that page, if there were 9,999, they'd have to throw the page away. A true scribe, Hebrew scribe, I mean here, a Hebrew scribe, there are very strict rules, and they really were literally perfect copies. But with Christians, it got kind of sloppy, the Christian scribes. Remember, because they're Romans often. You're talking about Rome here who hated Torah, and they didn't have the reverence. It was a big political struggle. I won't get into that, but the early centuries, it was all about politics and power. And particularly Emperor Constantine, he was a shrewd politician, and he knew that if he could bring together all these pagan religions of Rome and call them Christianity, it would give him power because he also declared him the head of Christianity. Anyway, I won't get into that, but um, the point is there is scribal error, okay? And it would not have had to have been intentional. It could have been accidental because they just weren't good scribes. They were sloppy. Come on, they could have been sloppy. But in general, um, it also, you got to remember, they're being told, they're being paid by the Roman church, and maybe if they want to change one little word to modify what a passage means, they did it. They did it. Now, it did not happen often. Again, I truly believe the New Testament is very, very reliable and, most importantly, self-correcting. It corrects itself. You can find passages in the New Testament that appear to conflict with, for instance, Torah, but you'll find many other passages that don't. So it corrects itself if it's properly read, particularly particularly if you utilize the Tanakh and the Torah mindset as you read it. It corrects itself. It's, I use the analogy of a base, baseball pitcher. A, a pitcher in a baseball game can be a highly paid, you know, uh, what's, the, what's the word, Hall of Fame pitcher, and win every game in a season. He could win, I mean, I don't think this has ever happened, he could win 50 games in a single season. But guess what? He doesn't always throw strikes. 
He's going to throw balls now and then. You know, it may be rare, but he's not perfect. The same thing with any, any other example you can come up with. Perfection is not required, and frankly, perfection is actually very rare. I would say, I mean, people will yell at me for this, I don't think the Tanakh is perfect. I'm sure there are minor errors here and there, not to the extent of the New Testament, but I'm sure there are, because frankly, I don't believe rabbis. And you can read rabbinic commentaries today, and they do change words or translate words differently than what the Hebrew actually says because they're biased too. Not as bad as Christianity, but they are biased. So I only say this because I don't want people to get anxious and doubtful of the New Testament. You don't have to be doubtful of the New Testament, okay? You don't. It is very reliable. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. If they do, they're, they're wrong, just flat wrong, or they're ignorant, or they're lying. Yes, it's not perfect, but it is very reliable. It is self-correcting, and if you utilize the Tanakh as your underlying basis of understanding, you'll get it right. And what I mean by that is what I'm fixing to say, all right? That the living God gave us an easy means with which to verify the topics that are discussed in the New Testament. That sure method of verification is to compare all of the writings within the pages of the New Testament to the Tanakh. Again, what Christianity sadly and irreverently calls the Old Testament. Compare what you read to the Tanakh. Of course, sadly, you first must understand the Tanakh, which most Christians never completely read and therefore do not understand, which is why it is so crucial, Christian, so important. Read the Tanakh. Read it cover to cover, multiple times. Get commentaries. Preferably, get you a good, I'm sorry, but it's true, a good rabbinic commentary, particularly the Torah. You've got to understand the Tanakh, because if you do not, you will never understand the New Testament. That's just the way it is. You've got to verify and compare the New Testament with what is within the pages of the Tanakh, which is exactly what the Bereans did, as recorded in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. And reading from, from Acts, Acts 17, 11, and this is actually the the standard by which every Christian should study Scripture. Acts 17.11 Speaking of the Bereans, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. In other words, they scrutinized everything they heard the apostles telling them. The scriptures they searched were the Tanakh. The New Testament did not exist then. The Bereans never even heard of a New Testament. They never read a New Testament. It didn't exist. So in Acts 17.11, when it talks about how they searched the scriptures daily, they weren't searching the New Testament because it didn't exist. What they were searching, the passages they were looking for, were within the Tanakh. Again, there was no New Testament. All right, 
I intended to end this discussion with part three, but um, I went down so many rabbit trails and, and discussed so many touchy little topics that we're now over 40 minutes into this. And I'm sorry, but uh, I'm not going to be able to finish it in three parts. I'll, so we'll have to have a part four here. But but the things I discussed were important. I was trying to clarify, and I threw, brought a lot into it that you, that isn't in the written material. Because people need to understand this stuff. This is very, very important. I mean, it really is. If you do not utilize the proper scriptures as your basis of understanding and faith, You'll have no basis of understanding in faith. You'll be, as Yeshua taught, the parable of the foundation built upon the rock or built upon the sand. The, the very first thing you do to establish your, the foundation of your faith is make sure you use the right scripture. That is the first thing. And if you are wrong about that, everything else after that, will come crumbling down because you will have a foundation of sand instead of rock. That rock foundation is the Tanakh. It is the proper use of the proper scripture to determine your faith. You've got to have the Tanakh, which itself is based on Torah. So ultimately, it's Torah that is the foundation. If you do not do that, then your faith is is just flawed, and you'll be wrong, and you'll never know it, because you'll just go down, you'll just be indoctrinated and led to believe things, and you will never realize that you started from the very start you were wrong. And so years down the road, you'll be fervently believing that you're right, and it will never occur to you that you started your journey of faith wrong. The journey has to start with the use of the proper scriptures, and that is not the New Testament. I'm sorry. It's the Tanakh. Now, the New Testament, of course, expands upon and clarifies very important things. And again, I, I love the New Testament. It's crucial. It's crucial. But you've got to under, read the New Testament with an understanding of the foundation of the Tanakh. And if you don't do that... My friends, you're you're going to be practicing an erroneous, flawed faith. That's period. You just are, and there's no debate of that. And if somebody tried to, I'm sorry, that's a debate they're going to lose because you've got to base it on the Tanakh, because that's the scriptures the Bereans used to scrutinize everything they heard. That's the scriptures that Yeshua the Messiah himself taught from and loved. That's the scriptures that all the apostles taught from and loved. That's the scriptures, the only scriptures that existed during the time frame of the New Testament. Okay, so we'll jump into a part four, sorry, <laughs> um, and we'll just be, it, it'll begin with discussing a proper approach to the New Testament, okay? which is important. So we'll begin how to approach the New Testament study uh, or study of, in general of the New Testament in part four, and it will hopefully, well, it definitely will. I will then also uh, add to the end of part four those 51 verses, which I have frequently mentioned within parts one, two, and three, in which the term Scripture is used in the New Testament to prove 
what I've said repeatedly, that every one of those passages are referring to the Tanakh, not to the New Testament. And I can easily prove it by simply reading every one of the passages, which I intend to do in part four. But for now, let's go. And I'm sorry I rambled so much, but it, there were some important things that needed to be said and clarified. So um, I'll see you next time, God willing. And continue, please, listening to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts because I'm trying to awaken Christians to return them to the original faith, the original faith of an end Messiah before it was corrupted and derailed by Rome as early as the second century. And we need to return to that faith because Yeshua himself is about to return. Better for us to return before he returns. Because once he returns, it's over, people. So we need to return to the true faith, the true faith of and in Christ. And hopefully we'll do that together. And thank you for listening, and goodbye.